Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. So today we're going to be talking to the author behind a really addictive summer read, especially for rock and roll fans. It's called Running with the Devil, a backstage pass to the wild times, loud rock, and the down and dirty truth behind the making of Van Halen. And Dirty Truth is really accurate. If the title The Dirt hadn't already been taken for a book about Motley Crue, that would be a good title for this book. And it's by Noel Monk, who went from being Van Halen's road manager to their actual manager and had quite a wild ride with them, kind of parted ways with them right as sort of the Sammy Hagar era was about to begin. And we have on the phone right now, we have Noel Monk. Hey, Noel, welcome to the show. Thanks for doing this. First of all, just a very famous thing that's been addressed many times, but since you are the man behind it, I feel like we should address it. The brown (laughs) M&Ms. One of the most infamous rock and roll things of all time, and I think one of the most misunderstood. Uh, Van Halen had in their tour writer uh, a proviso that there were to be no brown M&Ms in the bowl of M&Ms. And I think people use this as an example of, oh, this like decadent, insane rock band. But I think a lot of people have begun to understand the real purpose of it. But maybe you can share the origin of this thing in the contract and why you did it and what it meant. It was pretty simple. My, my road manager came to me and said, you know, we had a rider. Everyone has a rider. And ours was kind of like a phone book. And he said, you know, they're not reading all of it. I said, what do you mean? Well, they didn't do this. I said, hold on. Let me think about this. I'll tell you what. Let's put in no brown M&Ms. Because if they don't read that, we'll know that they haven't read the writer. He said, that'll work. That'll work. And my publicist was there, and he said, That'll work. Everyone will pick up on that. And it's become legend. Yeah. Uh, It's actually quite amazing how simple things take on a life of their own. How often did you show up and there were brown M&Ms, and how nuts would you go at that point? Oh, I wouldn't go nuts. (laughs) I'd just charge them $100 (laughs) and give the beer money to the crew. You know, um, what's there to go nuts about them? Them, them? I'm not that crazy, Brian. <laughs> no, but uh, but the stories are. The stories are, and that's what's important. Tell me about the Van Halen's family background and the, what you describe that may have led to some instability in the sort of psyches of, of the brothers Van Halen. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, you, they came from a foreign country. And they were young, and they weren't exactly um, flush with money. And their dad was uh, actually a very well-known Danish, um, well-known musician. Right. And the family was very musically inclined, as proved later. So the the other thing is that there was a, a sort of family history of drinking, and, and obviously uh, Eddie and his brother took to that pretty intensely. Yeah, the dad had a drinking problem, and um, one of his problems was he liked to get close to the boys by drinking with them. And he told me about that, and he'd always say, you know, no, the biggest problem I had was the time I, I finally got to the point 
We were so drunk, I forgot what it was. <laughs> they, uh, you describe a, a fight the first time you saw Eddie and Alex fight, uh, and they were screaming at each other in Dutch. You said right, and and it was it just sort of came out of nowhere, and it became an actual physical fist fight, and that was the first of kind of many you saw over the years, correct? I wouldn't say too many, but there were occasional fisticuffs. I mean, you're on the road. You got on people's nerves. I mean, that first tour in 78, we were out there for, you know, close to eight plus months. Right. You know, after a while, things get on your nerves. and So you were a road manager for the Sex Pistols, and, and that was one of the things that recommended you to Van Halen when you started out as a road manager. What What lessons did you learn from road managing the Sex Pistols that you then were able to take on to uh, to, to Van Halen and that, that, of course, you were so impressive in that first role that you moved on to the, the much more consequential role of manager. So so what what did you learn that lent itself to Van Halen? Well, it really started before that, Brian. We're going back to 68 when I worked for Bill Graham. Uh, I had come out of Carnegie Tech, and we all came out of Carnegie Tech. And uh, Bill started the Fillmore East. And when I was in 68, I was pouring Southern Comfort for Janis Joplin. And I was putting Jimi Hendrix on stage. I was his sound engineer and his stage manager. Wow. You know, and then we all went up and did Woodstock. You know, and that was a party of, of all the different crews got together. And I stage managed that. So... The Sex Pistols was just another band I took out, but, but, you know, Sid was one of my closest friends. Wow. He got very tight on the road, and Sid and I had a hangout together, or I'd lose him. I don't know if you ever read the book I wrote, 12 Days on the Road. Another good one, yeah. Sex Pistols, you know, and that, that talks about, you know, being on the road, because... If you're living it and you're on the road six, seven months a year, you became what we call the road rat. You know, you go home, you put your bags down, you get another tour, you take it. And every time you go out, you learn something else. You know, if you've never been dirty and grungy and sweaty at the end of the day, uh, then you've never been on the road. And what I'm saying, Brian, basically, is you learn from everything. Sure. The Sex Pistols certainly taught me a lot. And then I went back, and Carl Scott at Warner Brothers had this new band called, I guess they were Van Halen. Yeah. I said, who? <laughs> and he said, you know. Well, I said, well, that's interesting. And uh, he said, well, we want you to take them out. And I said, sure. Job's a job. And that's when I started working for them. Obviously, this is a very fortuitous gig for you to have taken, uh, and it led to some real adventures. One of the first things I think you realize is how hungry these guys were and how powerful they were live and how fast the rise was going to be. What, what made you kind of realize all that? Well, when you have an Eddie Van Halen, you know you have one of the most brilliant guitar players you've ever seen. I mean, he and a very few others uh, were seminal to their uh, generation. 
And then you had David. And there was a guy who could jump off a drum riser and do a split, land, and anyone else would have ended up in a hospital. And he did it perfectly. He had incredible raps. This was the best stage show, uh, one of the best stage shows I'd ever seen. And the one thing that they did, I don't care what they drank, ate, imbibed, they never did a bad show, mm. except the Oz Festival. <laughs> Pay me too much, and I'm going to screw up. One of the things that makes it clear how unstoppable their rise was and really paints a picture of what it's like when a band is just leaping up and bounds is they went on this tour with Journey and Montrose, and they were kind of quickly eclipsing both bands, which created a certain degree of tension. And, and then there was one of my favorite stories in the book involves uh, Guacamole and Steve Perry. Could you tell that story? Yeah, it was about in the third week of the tour, and we tended to trash hotel rooms. And But, for instance, Michael Anthony was a, a brilliant food mural designer <laughs> he would take the little amount of food we would get we would all cross augment it with five or six bottles of vodka and he would make murals on on the mirrors and i came in and i was getting ready to get the guys on stage and i walked in and it was dead silent now that screams at me Something happened, and nobody would look at me. That tells me it really happened, and I, I'm, I'm looking at everybody, and no one's looking at me. And finally, I said, okay, what happened? <clears throat> and Edward said, it was Dave's fault. <laughs> I said, well, what did Dave do? Well, he threw some peanuts at me. I said, well, capital offense, it. <laughs> And um, he said, well, so I threw a bowl of guacamole, and I missed. And there's a mirror in the middle of the room, and it was a stripe of green guacamole, but there was a gap in the mirror where a person might have been standing, and was standing, and it was Steve Perry. And I said, well, who, who was standing there? And they said, well, Steve Perry. I said, you trashed the opening, the headlining act. <laughs> and, you know, feet start to shuffle. I said, where is he? And he was in the bathroom. And I went in and Steve was, he was in tears because he had his new sateen jacket on. And he had just gotten it, and he was going to wear it on stage, and he had guacamole from the top of his head to his chest. And he was literally, he, he was literally, work. he was literally crying. He was, you could eat off him. Um, you know, he would have been a tasty treat. But I, I, you know, they kept threatening to throw us off the tour anyhow. So I spent about an hour cleaning him off 
and convincing him that this jacket would be okay. It would live and see light again. I think this not, is, I, we could I, probably get another one. This is a great example of uh, what working in the music business can entail. It might mean spending an hour cleaning guacamole off of legendary Journey lead singer Steve Perry, and that was how you once spent an hour. It was a well-spent hour, <laughs> and actually a lot of fun. I always enjoy cleaning guacamole up. <laughs> and Sid taught me to clean other things up as well. Uh, I can only imagine. So you're listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. We're talking to Noel Monk, a former Van Halen manager who wrote a very entertaining book called Running with the Devil about his time with Van Halen. And we'll be back with more from Noel. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the -the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. One of the things about Van Halen's career is a lot of people think that Van Halen 1 and 1984 stand pretty far above the rest of the albums, and I think you think so as well. And part of the problem was they were recording a lot of the other albums in this crazy rush. What was that all about? Well, the first album, you know, they had years to perfect. It was, you know, playing out and and biker bars and clubs and backyards and you know that that old story and um so that one was down pat it also was the best absolutely best first album i had ever heard wall to wall not a bad cut on it and for me again part of my job was promotion Try and break this band. And they gave me the key. Now, I don't know, all you rock and rollers, you listen to that album and you come out with one like that, you might make it too. <laughs> and then we would get off the road and the record company wanted another album. Well, you're on the road seven, nine months a year and you're a little tired. And, you know, so... We had to come off and make an album, and we'd do it in two, three weeks. And by the second album, it was okay, but it wasn't our most brilliant album. And the third, the fourth, and the fifth, you know, followed the same pattern. Very quick albums. And a lot of the problems started in the studio. Mm. Um. And then I decided this can't go on. We have to take a break. We have to come out with a brilliant, brilliant album. Or we're, we're not we're going to have... We had, by the way, the greatest fans in the world. Van Halen fans stuck with us forever. And they still know that Eddie and... and Dave are the seminal people of Dan Halen, and they love them. But they put up with those albums and loved them. Yeah. And then they made 84, 
And I knew at that point that we were ready to break through to another level. We hadn't gotten there yet, Brian. We had not become what we were ready to become. Right. By the, by the seventh album, I thought we were heading to stadiums and that we had five or ten years to go as an incredibly strong act. Well, that didn't happen. No. You write in the book, um, I'll be honest, I don't know how David and Edward work with each other. They had two very different visions for what they wanted, artistically speaking, and I, w- I witnessed them at each other's throats more often than not. I'm pretty sure the Coke, weed, alcohol cocktail made their nerves that much more frayed. But maybe that tension translated into Van Halen's raw signature sound. Hell if I know. So, in some ways, that essential relationship or lack thereof between Dave and Eddie was a mystery even to you, their manager. Is that true? Well, you got to remember, I lived with them for seven years. I was their manager, but I lived with the four people. And they had problems. Ed, Al, Dave came to me. Unfortunately, Michael never did. Um, But of course, you know, that is drugs and alcohol are going to be a problem. It exacerbates small problems and makes them bigger. And yes, Eddie and Dave had different visions. You know, you had the most brilliant guitar player, and you had the most brilliant front man. And they did not see necessarily eye to eye. You know, David's a very bright, short guy. He and Pete Angelus did the videos. Yeah. They were incredible. Edward was your music man, and your guitar, well, he was just incredible. Genius, yeah. Might not have been too bright. (laughs) Uh, No one ever claimed, you know, that he was going to ever be a Rhodes Scholar, or I don't know if he even graduated high school. But it didn't matter. Dumb as he could be, he was the best guitar player among great guitar players. He was one of the absolute best in rock history. So you're absolutely right. Drugs played a a terrible part in fracturing uh, their musical coherence. Now, you tell a story in the book, speaking of something you just said about Eddie, who I always found to be perfectly smart, but you tell a story that um, he had some questions about a basic fact of uh, human reproduction. Can you tell that story? Do you know what I'm referring to? How could I miss that one, then, Brian? Um, he was getting married to Valerie, and my lawyer called me up and said, no, we got a problem. I said, yeah, what is it this time? He said, well, this woman is suing Eddie as a paternity suit. And I said, mm, okay, let's see what we can deal with that one. And long story short, yeah, she was suing us in Riverside County. And um, Ed came to me and said, what am I going to do? I said, well, you're going to take a paternity suit and face the music. He said, no, I can't do that. I'm getting married. I said, well... What do you want, a baby screaming as you're going down the aisle? 
Well, no. He said, but no, I only got BJ's. <laughs> well, I said, you mean you never got inside her? You just got blowjobs? He said, yeah. He said, could I have gotten her pregnant? By giving her a blowjob, or, or vice versa, a yeah. So yeah, and and you informed him gently of how things work, and he was very relieved, right? Well, yeah, wouldn't you be? <laughs> well, the kicker to that story is this is where the famous f- rumor about David Lee Roth purchasing paternity insurance came from. This moment is that isn't that correct? Absolutely. So what I happened there? About that, if you want. Yeah, what uh, happened there? Well, as this is going on, Dave came in the office one day and he said, no, I, I, I have to have some way to protect the little guys. And I said, well, what do you mean? I, she said, you know, I don't want to get anyone pregnant. The little guys are working real hard. <laughs> and uh, I said, yeah, they sure are, Dave. And tell by the, by our medical bills. I know no, but I need paternity insurance. <laughs> kind of stopped me cold. I said paternity insurance, Dave. I'm not really sure we can get that. It it it. I've never heard of it. He said no. You can do anything. I know you can get me paternity insurance. I said well. As usual, I'll do my best. So I called around, and I finally got to Lloyd's of London, who anyone who was researching it would go to. (laughs) And I spoke to them, and they laughed at me, which is okay. A lot of people laugh at me. And um, they said, are you kidding? You want a million dollars in paternity insurance? For David Lee Roth, we wouldn't give it to anyone, <laughs> let alone David. I said, well, yeah, I kind of understand that. So I turned to David. I said, David, it's not happening. He said, my little boys aren't protected. <laughs> no, nah, they ain't protected. You have to go out there, and I know you're not going to put a raincoat on them. And, uh, but you then went and leaked then, it to the press worldwide anyway, and to this day, many people believe that he did get paternity insurance. Isn't that right? Yeah, that, <laughs> that's kind of the mentality of the press. They don't call Lloyds of London. They take our word for it. <laughs> we said, well, we might as well put it out. And- There's a story you tell about David Lee Roth ending up in a straitjacket. Is that true? Did this really happen, and what happened? Um, well, I know I've almost a couple times ended up in one, um, but I'm very claustrophobic. But as it turned out, I was in my office at the beginning of the tour. I usually spent the first two weeks there waiting for the problem to happen. And the road manager called me up and said, no, we got a problem. I said, good. Something to get me out of the office. He said, I said, what's the problem? He said, well, David got out of control. We couldn't control him. We had to put him in a straitjacket. I said, you did what? <laughs> you put David in a straitjacket? 
He said, well, he was really out of control. He was ready to jump off. I said, are you out of your mind? And I said, I'll be there. So I jump on a red eye. I get there. And the road manager was a good road manager, but he didn't like violence. And we had, I said, I went to his room. I said, did you do that? He said, I said, where'd you get a straight jacket? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, I just had one around. You had one around? For what? Your mother? <laughs> and um, he said, yeah, I made a mistake. I said, yeah, you made a mistake. So I went into Dave's room, and there was nothing in the room except Dave sitting on his bed. Everything else was out the window. <laughs> and uh, I said to the road manager, you got enough security where you could have sat on him for eight hours, and he couldn't have moved. I never thought about that. <laughs> yeah, I guess not. And I have never seen David so distraught. I mean, he was quiet. And so would I have been. And I was pissed. You don't do that to, to my lead singer. And I couldn't fire the road manager. It was the beginning of the tour. But uh, Dave and I sat and we talked for a couple hours and he came out of it, but I was pissed. And David was just almost shell-shocked. And if it was me, I would have ended up in a nut house, put me in a straitjacket. So his famous line, my security guy told me, was when he was in the jacket, he was yelling, I'm going to cut your blank head off and shit in your neck. <laughs> and he kept screaming that. It's a good line. Sure. I wish he had done it. And uh, that's how it happened, Brian. You know, another road problem. Sure. Just another road problem. So one of the things that struck me in the book that seemed kind of poignant uh, was the band's treatment of Michael Anthony, which escalated in your telling to them wanting to exclude him from royalties they wanted to treat him as a hired hand, uh, you know, even at that point. They, they just didn't value his contribution. What was, what was up with that? When you're talking disgusting, you're talking how they treated Michael. Michael was one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. You know, with a bass player and a drummer, you can dump both of them. Usually. Is there the backing band? Of course, you couldn't dump Al, even though he, Michael, they complained didn't write music or lyrics, but neither did Al. Mm. You know, but, you know, Al saw money. You get rid of Michael, I get more money. And Al was a pretty vicious guy. Mm. And uh, so we were having dinner one night, and... Edward turned to Michael and said, you know, you don't do anything. You don't write the music. You don't, you don't, you know, write the lyrics. Why are we paying you anything? And David came around the table and took a full plate of food. 
and smashed it down on, on Michael's plate. And everyone froze. And there was food and glass and everything everywhere. And then, of course, Al chimes in with, you deserve that. You don't do a bloody thing. <laughs> I'm thinking, and what do you do, Al? You know, at least Michael has the most beautiful voice in the world. Yeah. He really had a back-end voice that you couldn't, you didn't want to get rid of. You know, Al had a speaking voice, which you didn't necessarily want to hear, <laughs> but was not exactly into writing songs or making music. But he was so tied to Edward in a strange place that if they ever pulled apart, they would both be eunuchs. <laughs> um, the, the deal with that was you couldn't get rid of Al. And he knew it. He could say anything he wanted to Michael. And Michael was the one that was the least confrontational. Mm. Absolutely. And I never had a problem with him, Brian. Never. Yeah. But in the middle of the tour, after they put the album out, they had Michael sign a piece of paper that, after the fact, took away his 25%. Yeah, it's stunning. Why he never came to me, I don't know. But he lost millions and millions. I was disgusted. Especially when you have a deal from day one that we're cutting it four ways. Right. But they got greedy, and it, to this day, turns my stomach. In the few minutes we have left, I wanted to jump to the sort of end of the band as you knew it, which really began, there were a lot of things leading up to it, but really began, you were on a plane, and David Lee Roth said, hey man, I want you to hear something, right? And he gave you headphones and played what? And what was his attitude towards it? Yeah, that's what he did. And uh, there's your, your problem with what people like. I mean, there's Trini Lopez coming out. And I'm going, oh, my God. Oh, dear. What do you want to do with it, Dave? Oh, I want to make four cuts. I'm all got it all planned out. <laughs> and David is a very bright guy. But he can, when he screws up, he screws up. And at that point, you know, he played it for Edward at the airport. And Edward went, hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Basically, it was a, a well, so he, he had he had gone in this. David had gone in the studio, right, without telling anyone, and recorded. I think was it California Girls by himself. Yes. He basically was like, "Great news! <laughs> I've gone off without you and recorded this single, and I'm going to release a whole bunch of stuff." There was the biggest crack that ever happened in my band. So why the, why did David do that then? Why why would David do that? Why would David Lee Roth at the height of yeah. Head. I don't, I can't talk for David, and I don't want to. I don't know, but I was mortified. The handwriting was on the wall, <laughs> written in a blackboard with a 
stiletto. <laughs> you can't ask me to tell you what David was thinking, but I'll tell you what he did. He made it impossible for us to have an 85 tour. With him coming out with an album, what were we going to tour behind? It was, this was like, this was history in the breaking. If you had to put your finger on why this band couldn't last in its first incarnation, what was it? And there were too many things, Brian. I mean, you're talking about, you put the typical, typical, typical rock and roll stuff together, drugs, alcohol, jealousy, money, egos, power, musical differences, they all come into play. You can't say that did it or that did it. There's no way. I'm not bright enough. <laughs> I'm a bloody idiot when it comes to telling you why they did that. I don't know, and you know what? I wish they didn't. Broke my heart. Yeah. Really broke my heart. They destroyed a band that I had put together. After seven years, we had a merchandising company worth millions. I had gotten them a, a new contract worth tens of millions for their records. They had 140 people working for them who loved them. And they <laughs> threw it in the garbage. Mm. Brian, if you can answer that question for me, and you'll be the greatest manager in the world. <laughs> if only. If only. No, Monk, thank you so much for being here talking about Running with the Devil, uh, your, your really entertaining book about your time as Van Halen's manager during their absolute prime. Um, this has been Rolling Stone Music Now. We'll be back next week at 1 p.m. on Volume, Sirius Channel 106. And in the meantime, download us as a podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and also be sure to subscribe to us. We will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.